94.7 Kumu Kokua, because Kumu cares. We have on the line the Lieutenant Governor of the State of Hawaii, Dr. Josh Green. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Good to hear your voice. Um, Wanted to get right into uh, talking about the COVID cases uh, currently, because I'm looking at a headline right now. uh, I think it was KHON. Lieutenant Governor says Hawaii is on COVID tsunami watch. People are getting confused by the falling numbers of new coronavirus cases. Are we done with the surge or and or when would we see evidence of any Labor Day uh, related weekend, you know, spike if there is one? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So we, we've had two good days, or comparatively good days, on the 8th and the 9th at, at 380 cases and, and 429 cases. But you have to remember, fewer tests are performed over the holiday weekend. And so today's number will be very telling, as will tomorrow's. Now, if you want to know what the effect of the Labor Day weekend was, uh, as it was said very eloquent to, eloquently to me, a COVID tsunami watch from Labor Day, um, you won't see that result until the 15th or 16th of September, mm. which would be 10 days after. And also you have to account for the weekend. Uh, that's when we'll know. All signs suggest that that some gatherings were broken up and that some people were more mindful. And the people that did go out appear to have gone out in, you know, kind of their family friend bubble and they would have been together anyway. So that's not that's not impactful change from Labor Day. So, you know, it's it's plateaued, I think, is the better way to describe what we've been seeing for the last uh, week to 10 days, the cases in the hospital and now the cases at large. A lot of people have been vaccinated. 86.4% of all of our state has at least initiated vaccination if they're eligible. 86.4%. Of course, that sets aside the, uh, the 203,000 kids that are under age 12 that can't receive a vaccine. But that's a huge number. It means that we have a lot more protection. And also, if I may, if you go back to, say, July 4th, when we had, uh, at that time, we had 38,000 cases, exactly. Mm -hmm. And we are now at 70,000 cases, virtually. So that those additional 32,000 people were essentially all unvaccinated, and they're now all partially immune. You know, so that's not insignificant. That's another few percentage points. So... We are accumulating immunity two different ways, getting vaccinated or catching COVID. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, Lieutenant Governor, I'm going to go straight to some of the questions we got from Facebook, uh, from Heidi Pasco. Can tourists from Canada use their vaccination cards uh, to pass testing for safer uh, outside or safe access Oahu for dining? That's really a question that they're going to have to refer to the city and county. We have been accepting their their tests in Canada. We worked Mm -hmm. that out. And you would think that if they have vaccination cards and have done exactly what we've done, if they've done either Pfizer or Moderna or Johnson Johnson, that the mayor um, will allow that to happen. But again, questions regarding um, these vaccine passes for restaurants have to be referred to his team. That's their policy. Cool. Thank you. Um, wanted to talk about the schools. Uh, more than 2,500 cases linked to the public schools. Do, Lieutenant Governor, do you think there can be improvement in how the schools are trying to prevent COVID? And if so, how? I do think there can always be improvement. I have a kid in public school, Sammy, and he did have to go through quarantine because there was a small outbreak in his classroom. Uh, it, it is difficult with kids because even though they're diligently wearing masks and the policy is the right policy to have them wear masks in classrooms to prevent spread. They still 
play uh, games together up close. They still take their masks off to drink water, of course, and, and have lunch. And so we have to spread kids out more when they are forced to take their masks down to eat. We have to make sure kids are at home if they're sick at all. We have to offer a lot more testing. And frankly, there should be surveillance testing, random surveillance testing from time to time in some of the um, more at-risk school districts because there are just high rates of risk when you only have 30 or 40% of the parents getting vaccinated in those communities. So there's always a lot more that can be done. Fortunately, kids have not gotten nearly as sick as adults and they represent a far smaller percentage of, of sickness that ends up in the hospital. But every family has to make their own mind up. Sure. Um, as a follow-up question, the Los Angeles School District uh, made headlines this week because they became the largest school district in the nation to require vaccines, not only of their staff, but of students as well. Do you think um, something similar is being discussed here? Why or why not? I can't speak for the superintendent. I don't know whether he's considering that or not. I'll tell you what my feeling is, is that mandates right now are dividing society to a degree, even though I'm completely supportive of vaccinations personally and as a public figure. But I'm a little worried that mandates are going on to groups that otherwise are on the fence. About 50% of families are choosing to have their children 12 to 12 to 17 vaccinated. And I can't imagine that Los Angeles United would accept 50% of their kids not coming back to school. That would be terrible. So I do personally think that there has to be a testing option also so that people can get a simple test. Testing in that case is an important part of the answer. Now, just so people know, the LA school system that you're describing is like the second biggest in the country. You're talking about a phenomenal effort to do anything there. And also, most of those children in that school district live in poverty, and they live in multi-generational households in the L.A. County. So they're facing kind of what our our families faced amongst the Pacific Islander community, a lot of multi-generational households, a lot of English as a second language families. They have really serious challenges there, and therefore a lot more spread, disproportionate spread. And I think that's why they're taking this action. Okay. Thank you very much. Lieutenant Governor Josh Green joining us here. Uh, heading back, Lieutenant Governor, to Facebook. Uh, Malcolm Isud is asking, what percentage of the general population has underlying conditions? Uh, he says he suspects underlying conditions applies to a large percentage of people who consider themselves healthy. Yeah, at least 40% of our society has underlying conditions of one kind or another. And that usually means high blood pressure, prediabetes, diabetes, or cancer. It's enormous. Now, if you really want to be uh, particular about it, you also have to consider consider mental health uh, concerns, which mm-hmm. are depression, uh, schizophrenia, and anxiety issues, which has soared. That alone accounts for a huge percentage of additional people. I'm not even counting that those cases. And why does that matter? Because depression, isolation, all of those things do track with worse health worse health outcomes. So. All of these things are relevant when you're talking about isolation or catching COVID. We have had some heartbreak and loss of life because of these things. Dear friends of mine have been dealing with that with their colleagues and friends. So these are all real problems for us. And it's why striking a balance of getting out of the COVID crisis and keeping society sustained and trying to achieve some normalcy is another big part of this response. People discount how important that is, but it is hugely important. 
Okay. What I see happening online with a lot of discussions when when the numbers come out and we talk about deaths and then you know you know so and so you know this person passed away uh, in this age and they had underlying conditions. Frequently, when we look at the online discussions, people will say, "Ah, those deaths don't count because they had underlying conditions and in addition to COVID, so they didn't really die of COVID." How do you react to that? That's idiotic. The the real deal is, yeah, people, you have a lot of 30-year-olds out there with high blood pressure, and they would not have manifested any serious health outcome until their 50s, 20 years later. COVID is what exacerbated their problem. COVID is what put incredible strain as they went into respiratory arrest and had a heart attack. It was COVID that killed those poor souls. The same can be said of a 45-year-old who's had maybe pre-diabetes. The pre-diabetes is probably a non-issue. It's certainly not going to be a big problem until they're 70. But when they caught COVID and they were more susceptible because their immune system crashed and then they went into uh, a pneumonia state and then hypoxia, which is low oxygen and died, it was COVID that did it. So those people, of course, don't know what they're talking about. People, if they have questions, they should just talk to their doctor or their nurse. Talk to that person. That person is infinitely more likely to give them a reliable, solid opinion that they should trust. All right. Thank Mm -hmm. you. I wanted to talk about pediatric cases now because um, so I'm looking at two pieces of data here. One talks about a nationwide increase in the number of child hospitalizations. Right now we're nearing 3000 child hospitalizations across uh, the United States Um, in Hawaii here. I'm not sure if you could maybe shed some light on how hospitalizations are happening with children. Certainly, as I look at the Hawaii Department of Health data, um, the number number of cases, new cases among pediatric patients is uh, the 0 to 17 group of 412 new cases per 100,000. That's the rate in the past week. They're spiking the highest. So that lowest age group, the youngest age group is spiking the highest among new cases. How many kids are we seeing in the hospitals right now? That's not clear to me in the data. And are, are we concerned about that? Well, we are concerned about every child in the hospital, make no mistake. We've had 135 hospitalizations total over the course of the 17 months of the pandemic. That is a very low number because a lot of these individuals have been hospitalized over different times when they've had other lung conditions and and they catch viruses of other sorts. So it is, it's not uncommon at all to have kids in the hospital, especially during the winter months. So it's a low number. Children have manifested symptoms at a rate of about 4% 30 after having the infection as opposed to adults who have manifested having symptoms about 30% after 30 days. So it's way less impactful, but it's not nothing. We did have one fatality of, I believe, a seven-year-old uh, who had traveled to Hawaii who did have severe lung problems. And the COVID uh, virus put them over the top and did take their life. But otherwise, it's a small, small number. We have As of yesterday, 412 people in the hospital. And as of today, I believe we're going to have somewhere between 410 and 415 individuals in the hospital. Of all those people, there was only one child that was particularly sick in the intensive care unit. It tended to be the very young, like kids under two, or teenagers close to adulthood. That's the group that have been in the hospital a little bit more. It's a small number, but of course, if it's your child it's a heartbreak. It's a tragedy. So that's why we have to do all that we can to protect kids. And kids haven't gotten too sick. 
Okay, thank you very much. Uh, staying on the the kids uh, bend on this, ran into our family doctor, and he was lamenting the fact that uh, he's got parents calling him up asking him for prescriptions for ivermectin. If I, if they have worms, then they've made the right call. <laughs> if they have COVID, then they should go and get you know remdesivir, or they should get seen by their doctor and have oxygen therapy. But it's not, um, or even monoclonal antibodies, oh. but, but not ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine. I, um, I, it's just. Uh, I'm just confused that people are actually good. calling their doctors for this prescription. Because he goes, uh, he says he's telling patients, uh, you don't, like you said, you don't have worms. Uh, you're not a horse. He goes, I don't know. Yeah. We don't prescribe it in that way. So I, I wouldn't even know what to, what dosage to give you. It's very frustrating. Yeah, for him. Not, yeah. It's a, you know the reason this is going on is because people are a little scared, and I I want to acknowledge that people are scared. They've made a decision in most of these cases to not be vaccinated, and now on the other side of that uh, equation, they've, they've contracted Delta variant of COVID, and they now realize that their health is in jeopardy. So all of a sudden, a group of people who are making the argument that something wasn't adequately proven are pivoting and demanding that they get something that's not proven at all for treatment of their COVID virus, which is, that's desperation, and that's not rational. And so that's why physicians should not be, uh, should not be caving to that request. It's, it's not okay. It's important to actually to keep the focus on the best thing we have, which is prevention, and that's vaccination. And the second best thing is very, very sensible decisions about when we get together with our friends or family, when we are out and out in larger groups, and when we wear masks. It's not too difficult to stop COVID if society can um, commit to those things. But if you got people having raves or if you have, we still have 170,000 adults over, you know, over the age of 12 who refuse to get any vaccination protection, you will still see outbreaks, especially in those rural communities who are who are suffering that you know that low vaccination rate. So mm. I'm going to keep encouraging people. There have been some encouraging signs. We've been averaging a much higher number of people getting vaccinated a uh, few days. It's been much closer to five, six, even 10,000 people getting vaccinated on a couple days. And it had bottomed out at around 1,200 a day on average. So that's a lot more immunity that we're going to see. We have an opportunity to get to 70% of our state fully vaccinated in the next month. And we also have an opportunity to get to 90% of all eligible people uh, vaccinated, at least initiating their vaccination in the next month. That is incredible. So we're, you know, we're among the best in the country. That will prevent other outbreaks. It will prevent other mutations uh, from happening here. It's a good thing. So a little bit uh, behavior and some quiet time just with our family and getting vaccinated as a society means we'll end this. Uh, and not a moment too soon, by the way, because had we hit 500 in the hospital, it would have been so damaging to our future that uh, I don't really know. I don't know how we would have been able to handle that psychologically. So I'm I'm grateful that the numbers have at least plateaued. 
All right. Thank, thank you. you. Wanted to talk about now um, the Oahu Safe Access Program kicking off on Monday. Do you feel that that program is really going to make a difference in cutting down uh, the spread of coronavirus here? And, you know, since Oahu has the bulk of the cases and, you know, we have these overflowing hospitals, why wouldn't Oahu go with something that uh, is more similar to like maybe what Maui is doing with the safer outside order, five people inside, 10 outdoors, etc.? Look, the mayors are doing their best. It's completely impossible for me to compare one mayor to the other or to to stand in, in between that. That's, that's not a question that I should answer. It's All I could say is everyone's doing their best to decrease cases overall. It will probably not have a large impact because most people are vaccinated now. Like I said, 86.4% of society has at least initiated vaccination. So it would have been about 86.4% of those going into restaurants workers or people just going to get food would have been basically already complying with the last 13.6 percent they have to take stock of their own lives and know that they're putting themselves and others at risk if they're in big group what i can tell you is number one vaccination help do stop the spread in in large terms number two you know what my position was last uh, last weekend for Labor Day, no gatherings were acceptable because all gatherings pose some risk. Mm-hmm. And it's not worth taking extra risk when your hospitals are almost full. So you know, I keep my counsel fairly close to my um, best with the mayors and the governor. Occasionally I speak out when I think we're in a desperate situation. But these are questions that you need to ask Mayor Blangiardi and Mayor Victorino also. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, Lieutenant Governor, I just got a text uh, from someone. Can you ask Dr. Uh, excuse me, Lieutenant Governor Green why people who have had natural antibodies from having COVID are being treated like they are unvaccinated? I don't know if that's true, but that's what they're asking. I, no, I, I, I appreciate that point. I actually have maintained for quite some time that person has had uh, COVID, that they should be treated as though they've received a vaccination. And uh, we could debate how long they have antibodies, but I think it's safe to say after six months, you have immunity as though you've been vaccinated. And there should be a provision in any of these rules that if you've had COVID, um, you can get a, a a safe pass or a smart card or what have you, because there's a challenge otherwise. If you've recently, a lot of people will ask you to wait before you get uh, a vaccine. If you receive monoclonal antibodies, you're you're... 90 days before you can get vaccinated. And we can't restrict people from restaurants for 90 days just because mm-hmm. they went and got monoclonal So there is a lot that I will share with people as they develop these programs. Uh, it's, it's, it's a tricky calculation. I also will tell you, I think I mentioned that all of the cases basically for the last three months have been among unvaccinated people. Very few have been breakthrough cases as a percentage. That means all those people now have natural immunity, and that's a good thing. I mean, it's a good thing they have immunity. It's a terrible thing that they caught COVID. So we should be mindful of that, too. I will give you next week, I'll do my best to give you an approximation of what our total immunity picture looks like in the state of Hawaii. I have some idea uh, based on people who have caught COVID and people who have gotten vaccinated. Uh, But it's needless to say, it's a pretty good number. We'd be well over 70% immune as a state uh, by the time I report that to you next week. And we could get 90% immunity uh, by October at this rate. Unfortunately, a lot of that immunity is because right now you've got 10,721 people with active COVID, another 20,000 undiagnosed who didn't go get tested. 
And then on top of that, people in the process of getting their vaccinations completed. Right. Okay. Okay. Uh, Lieutenant Governor, I'd like to piggyback on that issue because there are now 70,000 people in Hawaii who have recovered. Generally speaking, if you can just give them a little bit of guidance about moving forward. Actually, one of my best friends recently had COVID and she had all kinds of questions Mm -hmm. as she came out of that. Like, when can I go back to work? Do I need to test afterwards? Somebody told her yes. Somebody told her no. Somebody said you need to take a test after you're done before you can come back to work. Another person said, no, you don't take testing afterwards. It was very confusing. Also, the question, do people still need to get vaccinated after they've had COVID? If so, when? Can you give some guidance about that? 70,000 people in Hawaii now in this category. Okay, so first of all, if you've had COVID, once you are 10 days out from your confirmation of COVID and you're asymptomatic, meaning you don't have headache, body aches, cough, you are free to go back into society and back to work. You are no longer infectious standard it's not it's not a bad idea to get a note from the department of health that's what i did after i had covid just so people knew they're there okay so that's you know that's one thing now everyone should get vaccinated after they've had covid at some point there are different there are differences of opinion about this 30 days after you've experienced covid and gotten over it is perfectly safe to get vaccinated some people wait as long as 90 days The reason it's not that big a deal is because you definitely have persistent immunity for well longer than 90 days. And when you get that vaccination, what you're doing is you're giving yourself now a vaccination booster to the illness that you had. So you are boosting by five, which is an enormous boost, your immunity. I went through that myself. I had COVID. In fact, I had COVID a year was exactly when I caught COVID. Um, I was catching COVID over the weekend of 9-11. And when I had COVID, sick for a couple of days and then got vaccinated when the vaccine became available and it gave me a lot of extra immunity. And I'm grateful for that because I probably would have had to worry about it otherwise, again, when the Delta variant came out and I didn't want to worry. So I hope that that's good enough advice for people. Those 70,000 people represent 5% of the population. That 5% of the population has immunity. For how long? It's impossible to know for sure. Uh, but they should be considered as part of our, you know, our now statewide protection. Some of them, of course, have also gotten vaccinated. So that's another number that we'd have to discuss. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, Lieutenant Governor, I want to pivot to something uh, that is asked of me like a couple times now. Uh, it's regarding the private employers. And I think the, the federal mandate, like if your company is over 100 people, you need to get everybody vaccinated or do a weekly test. Uh, again, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you even know the answer for this, but uh, they're asking if the employer is responsible the, for the cost of the tests. Uh, yes. Uh, let me talk about that in one second. I, I also realized that as may ask another thing, do you need to get a test after to show that you are negative? The answer is no, because you can sometimes have persistent viral particles, though the virus is dead for three months. So mm. you would often test positive and that is not relevant. Mm. So okay. employers and other people, once you're 10 days out, should not be asking you to get a test to get cleared, just to be clear. Right, now on the federal question, you're welcome. Sorry about that. No. So on the federal question, my feeling is the way we should do the program is to offer a test to everybody who chooses not to get vaccinated at least once a week. There's a mixed opinion as to who's going to pay for this. And right now, my understanding is that President Biden is telling people that they will not, or the federal workers, they will, they will not even have the option to get a test. Mm-hmm. 
I, I don't like to push back against the president. I appreciate him. I appreciate the office. I, you know, I, I respect the office under all circumstances, but that is, uh, that's a little bit tough on people. And I think that it's important instead that we just be generous and, and probably pay for the test. But the good news is in our state, over 84% of our, it's actually 86.4% of our people have already at least gotten one shot. So I would say there are very few people that are going to ultimately be put to this tough question of whether or not they have to test all the time. Really what it is in the state of Hawaii, it is a statement of ideology, which is that we feel that people are all in this together and we should get vaccinated because it's been deemed safe and it's protecting us from a larger surge. And if I may add on my soapbox, we have such a small healthcare system, we can't afford to have big outbreaks. That's why, you know, we have to be more careful and why I'm floating some ideas, even ideas that may not catch on right away, but often will be adopted later, like using a new facility that right now is empty as a way to take down some of the pressure from the acute care hospital system crisis. These are the kind of things we have to always be ready for in Hawaii because we don't have the luxury of being able to cross state lines and get another hospital system on our side. We can't just suddenly, you know, inherit 300 doctors. That's a lot of doctors for Hawaii. So we're kind of lucky that we got those those ICU nurses that came into our state. All right. Thank you. Help our listeners understand where we stand here in Hawaii with variants. There's so many different variants that are being watched by, you know, state and national health leaders. Should we be concerned about the other variants on the horizon? We should always be concerned. Uh, the MU variant is uh, a very low uh, prevalence variant. Uh, do I worry about it? Sure. I worry about all these variants and the gamma variant, the epsilon variant. I mean, all these variants, they, they are in small numbers in different parts of the world. The MU variant, MU variant came out of Colombia. It went to all the states, but only in tiny numbers. But variants that could ultimately evade the antibody response from mm-hmm. vaccinations are what you worry about. And the pharmaceutical companies and the epidemiologists all across the world have said it takes tends to take at least three to five years before a major change in a variant occurs, so much so that you'd have to change your vaccination process. It's very rare. The reason you worry about it in this case is because with 223,318,000 people confirmed with COVID globally and another five, six, seven hundred million people probably having caught COVID and not been tested because they live in very poor countries. That's a lot of, of variants possible uh, in the world. That's a lot of potential mutations. And if a mutation occurs like the, the Delta variant and it's super infectious, you know, it's, it's like six to eight uh, people per case are getting infected and much higher are not, then you got to worry. Uh, but in general, our immunity is building. And the reason I'll say it again, the reason, uh, quote, novel coronaviruses are so dangerous is because our bodies never dealt with them. We've been dealing with flus and com- common colds and everything for decades. And I tell you, it's a um, it's a different world. I'll tell you, we have so many variants that I'm just waiting for the day that we have the FU variant. And that is the variant of choice to be discussed uh, widely because I think everyone's feeling that way about these variants as of just about now. <laughs> Did you just make a little joke there? <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Okay. Um, and, and speaking, I'm sorry, speaking of shots, and you just mentioned the flu, I know we're wrapping up here, but did you want to say something about the importance of getting flu shots right now? You don't have to worry about that. You can take the flu shot 
uh, along with the if you're taking the booster or if you're taking the vaccination for COVID. But if you want to spread them out two weeks, it's not the worst thing. So if you see an opportunity, go get your flu shots, which did arrive in Hawaii already. Go get it. Take take the flu shot. And then when your time comes to get your third dose, which we know is going to be recommended soon, we've heard that on September 20th or thereabouts, the feds are going to give us recommendations about the spacing between your second in other words, the second from Pfizer or Moderna shots mm-hmm. and your next shot. There will also be recommendations about a second Johnson & Johnson shot. I think it's going to be recommended at eight-month intervals after, uh, but I'm waiting just like everybody else in, in the public health system to, you know, to see when we're supposed to do it. I would expect people all across the world to still be getting vaccinated in 2022, 23, 24. However, Hawaii should be essentially secure and safe by the end of this calendar year. And then beyond that, uh, we will be probably exporting some of our expertise, experience and workforce to help other places like they've helped us. Uh, but we're all in this together. And I mean, even beyond the shores of Hawaii, we're all in this together. All right. Thank you to the Lieutenant Governor of the State of Hawaii, Dr. Josh Green. Mahalo, sir. Mahalo. Thanks for having me. Thank you.